Good, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, just love being with you guys, even in the midst of all the stuff that's going on, both good and bad. It's just good to be in your presence and in the Lord's presence, obviously. As you walked in, you walked in with the Lord. So that's a good thing. Uh, a couple things as we get started. Um, uh, I want to, sh- we're, we're, we're in Acts. I'll, I'll wrap up this portion of Acts today, Acts 19, 11 through 20. And then we get into 1 Corinthians and um, I, I'm, I'm not going to start 1 Corinthians, but I'm going to give you an introduction. Keith and I were at lunch Thursday, and I said, I'm getting ready to teach 1 Corinthians, and he kind of chuckled because he knows what's in 1 Corinthians uh, and just all the issues that we get to talk about. And so today, I'll bring those issues up. But I think I'll use today to kind of give you uh, a context of of those issues, and then when we actually read Paul's letter, it makes a little bit more sense. So uh, I'm excited about this. I want to show you a map. Uh, we use Proclaim around here, and of course, Jim, it's not going to do what it's supposed to do. I just sat here and, and did this like five times, and now it's not going to do it. Am I, I feel, I hear, that good? So now, Jim, it's not going to, I had the map, and I was going to be able to like draw on the map on the TV, but I don't think it's going to let me do it. This is, is it done it? Nope. Doggone it. Uh, anyway, I'll show you over here. This is Corinth over here on the far left. And this is obviously where Paul has visited and started the church and he's going to write a letter to. But currently, Paul is over here in Ephesus over in Asia. So he's in the pink part and he's writing to the people over in the green part right there. And uh, we'll get to that in here in just a second. But let's finish up what is happening in Ephesus. But let me start with this story that happened in October 13th, 54 AD. At the time, the emperor was Claudius, and Claudius died. You know how Claudius died? By his wife. His wife, Agrippina, served him his favorite meal of mushrooms, and she poisoned him. The reason she poisoned him is so that her son could become the emperor of Rome. Who was her son? Anybody? Nope. It was not Claudius Jr., but that was a good guess, Ryan. Nero. Nero was the son of Claudius and Agrippina. And she wanted him to be the new emperor. Now, you guys, 
I'm telling you history here. This is not out of the scripture. This is just out of the Bible. But we're trying to paint this whole picture of what's going on here. And Nero, his first five years, he's pretty calm dude. But then in 59, around 59 AD, he becomes the Nero that you're well aware of in history books. He actually kills his mother, Agrippina, who put him in... I mean, think about it. He's, he's learning from his own parents. If she killed her husband, then the pattern continues, and he even killed his own mother. N- Nero's madness was, was really kind of kept in check there for a couple of years. He had the guidance from the philosophers Seneca and Burrus. They were the head of the Praetorian Guard at the time. But in 62 AD, Seneca retired and Burrus died, and the madness of Nero was fully unleashed. In fact, in 65 AD, Nero had Seneca commit suicide. He made him commit suicide. One of his trusted followers and encouragers and mentors. That's the time period that we're dealing with as Paul is dealing with all these issues of the church. There is madness going on in the government. Hmm. You really think that the things that we're experiencing today have never been experienced but all we are doing is repeating cycle after cycle after cycle of history. You'll see it today. There is madness going on. But here's where we pick up in verse 11 of chapter 19 of Acts. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Who was performing extraordinary miracles? God was. By Paul's hands. So Paul wasn't doing it. God's doing it. So that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So now while Paul's in Ephesus, he's performing miraculous things. He's performing, but who's actually doing the miracles? God is doing the miracles. But when it says he takes his face cloth, he's literally talking about sweat rags. It's, it's hot over there. And he's working in the afternoon, remember. He's teaching, and he's literally sweating and wiping, and they're taking these cloths and giving them to people, and people are miraculously being healed by God. Hmm. Now you wonder where all these televangelists get that whole thing of if you give and support, we'll send you a handkerchief that's been blessed and you will be healed. Because this is exactly what happened right here in Ephesus. They were performing miracles just by people touching Paul's robes and by taking his sweat rags and touching them. And You know, when our Lord did miracles, there was typically three reasons that he did the miracles. 
one, he, he wanted to show compassion to the person themselves. Like if they needed healing, he, he wanted to heal them. So he showed compassion to them. But then he also did it to, to teach some sort of spiritual truth. And then the third thing that it did, it proved that he was the Messiah. That he was God because these miracles were being done. And how many miracles did Jesus actually do? I heard it, what? None. He said none. Wait, there's like, in the back of your Bible, there's 33 miracles that Jesus did listed. But Jesus said, I didn't do these. My father did these. He just did them through me. I performed them, but my father's the one that did the miracles. And this is exactly what's going on with the apostles and Paul. They followed this same pattern. In fact, the ability for Paul to do miracles just proved his apostolic ministry. You can see it uh, in Romans. You can see it in 2 Corinthians. You can see it in Hebrews. But the miracles themselves didn't save sinners. Remember what saves sinners is simply faith, simply belief, right? But the miracles were tied to the message of God. It was always tied to the message of God. God enabled Paul to perform special special miracles because Ephesus was the center of the occult. You'll find out later. A lot of strange things happen in Ephesus. A lot of evil things. A lot of magic. A lot of different things going on. And so... God really enabled Paul to demonstrate God's power through Paul giving him approval. I hope that makes sense. Verse 13, it says, Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, this is what they said, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. (laughs) I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. What does that lead you to believe? Is they may not know the same Jesus that Paul knows, but they know Paul. Like if Paul can do this through that Jesus, then we're just going to say Paul's name as well, but not necessarily claim that we know Jesus. You see, here, here's, the, here's the crazy thing, is when God's doing some great things, he, Satan is going to imitate those great things. And it will never be the same. It will never be what God does, but he will try to recreate and do similar things. It was not unusual for a Jewish priests to seek and cast out demons. That was a common thing in those days. But it was unusual for a Jewish priest to use the name of Jesus Christ because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Since these men had no personal relationship, they had to say Paul's name. It was just kind of strange. And then verse 14, this is where the the movie cameras start rolling. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest walking to a bar. No, just kidding. Uh, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. 
The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus. This is the evil spirit talking inside. The guy that's demon-possessed is talking. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? That's good stuff right there. The demon-possessed man says, Hey, look, I know Jesus, and I can recognize Paul, but who are you fellas? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them. So they ran out of that house naked and wounded. That is good stuff right there. Uh, Now, wait, wait, wait. Had this exorcism succeeded right here, it would have discredited the name of Jesus and Paul's ministry. You get that, right? And however, God used this scheme, this demon-possessed man, to defeat Satan and to bring conviction to the believers. Because there's another verse that follows here in just a second. But there's two lessons that emerge from this story right here. For one, Christianity has nothing to do with magic. Magic is magic. Christianity is something totally different. God's miracles are something that is totally different. God's miracles are not magic. They're majestic, but they are not magic. And secondly, the demon did confess the power of Jesus over him. Jesus I know. If you go to James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and shudder. Like the demons know who God and who Jesus is. He said it right here. I know Jesus, and you're not Jesus. The people of Ephesus, they recognized what was going on here. That these Jews really had, these Jewish high priests really had no power. That the power came from God. In the name of Jesus is all the power that was needed to drive out these demons. In verse 17 it says this, When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held high in esteem. Instead of disgracing the name of Jesus, this whole event magnified his name. I mean, this really could have gone bad, but God took this situation and made it to glorify him. It says in verse 18, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. I like the tense of that verb right there. It indicates that people just kept coming, they kept confessing, and they kept showing. Verse 19, While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone, so they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Drachmas, that is. So, As a result of what just occurred in this one house, magicians that believed began repenting. What does repenting mean? 
It means to change their mind about things. Like, they believed in Jesus, they believed that he was the Savior, but they were still practicing their magic because that's what they knew out of their flesh. And now they've changed their mind. We need to stop practicing this magic because it's not one in the same. It's two totally different things. They burn their magical scrolls and they literally dispelled all their secrets, told how they did everything in public. This is how we did it. That's magic. The value of the documents that go up in smoke, 50,000 drachmas, you know how much that total value actually comes to in today's standards? It's equivalent to the total salaries of 150 men working for a whole year. And they took that and they burned it. They got rid of it. It's worthless. It had a lot of money value to it, but it was worthless to them as believers in Jesus. And then the last verse right there, 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. These people did not count the cost, but repented and turned from their sins. They literally, because of this one event, hundreds came to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's the end of that section. Now, we'll pause all this for a second and let me explain to you what's going on. In Corinth, across the water, in the green part, here's what's happening. Apollos was there and he's doing ministry. And he returns to Ephesus where Paul is. And he began, he brings Sothenus with him as well. Remember, Sothenus was the, ran, the guy that ran the Jewish tabernacle temple, and then he also came to know Jesus Christ as Messiah. But Apollos comes across to Ephesus, and he meets with Paul, and he, and he begins to inform him about the problems that are going on in the church in Corinth. This is what every pastor loves to hear. All the gossip, all the stuff, you know, like when you leave for a while or you're gone and everybody just tells you all the junk that everybody's doing. Most of the time you already know the junk, but some of the times you hear it for the first time. Apollos is telling Paul that some of the Corinthian believers are reverting back to their heathen lifestyles. This is what they came from before Paul was there and told them about Jesus. Now they're going back. That was that included fornication, worshiping idols, stealing from one another. So Paul, you know, he's staying in Ephesus and he decides to write a letter. In 54 AD, Paul sits down and writes a letter. This is not 1 Corinthians and this is not 2 Corinthians. We don't have this letter. It's it's like Corinthians A. We don't have it. We just know about this letter based upon what we read in his other letters that he's already written a previous letter. He wrote it when he was in Ephesus. He wrote it to the church in Corinth. It was 54 AD, and he literally begins to explain to them this desire not only for them to check their behavior, but he also wanted to explain that Jerusalem relief fund that he so wanted to raise. 
And Paul tells them in this letter that, hey, I'm going to visit you when I leave Ephesus. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to come over there. I'm going to hang out with you. We'll deal with all the issues that are got going on. Uh, and then Paul sends this letter to Corinth with Titus. So now Titus goes back over with Paul's letter. And while in Corinth, Titus is helping the Corinthian believers to begin collecting money for the Jerusalem fund. And then he leaves and returns back to Ephesus. And there's this doctrine of Hellenistic dualism that's going on over in Corinth. And he comes back and tells Paul, this is what's going on in Corinth. Now, I had to like uh, look up what Hellenistic dualism was. But according to this doctrine, if individuals have the Spirit of God, they live above the earthly plane and are unaffected by what they do with their bodies. The material world is temporary, so it does not matter what kind of physical behavior in which a person engages. Thus, sexual immorality is acceptable. Further, since God is not interested in the physical world, there will be no resurrection of the dead. Now, that, that's basically, that's not too far different than what we believe. Don't, don't confuse what I just said there. It's definitely messed up. But if I believe, based upon what Scripture says, that anything outside of faith is sin, anything outside of faith is sin, then the only thing that matters to God is what I do in His strength. Not in my own strength. Now look, I've always said in here, I've got two choices. I either act out of my spirit or I walk in my flesh. Right? I've got two choices. You can either walk in my spirit that God has given me. In other words, when I walk in the spirit, I rest, like literally, I'm hanging out here today and I'm trusting these words, especially right now and trying to communicate this to come from God and not from Rusty. You can take what I'm saying and you can compare it with God's word. And if I'm wrong, talk to me. But this is what it looks like to walk by his spirit. If I sat up here and gave you my opinions and my political ideas and things like that, which I have, I would probably be talking out of my flesh. Which is not a faith which would be sin. There's a difference in those two things. And when I get to heaven and there's this judgment seat, which is going to be a cool thing, all the things that I've done in my flesh will be burned away, and all the things that I do in the Spirit is what matters. That's it. So God's only concerned about what I do in the Spirit. He's not concerned about what I do in the flesh because He's already dealt with that on the cross. That almost sounds like this right here, this Hellenistic dualism. But the truth of the matter is, the difference for them is they had the permission because of this belief to just go ahead and live worldly life. The difference for me is 
I've been given the ability to walk by the Spirit. And I choose to walk by the Spirit. Look, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. I can do whatever I want here on this earth and even understand that it's been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. But the more I understand what Jesus did on the cross for me, the less I want to do that stuff and the more I want to walk by the Spirit. You guys, that's the freedom of the gospel right there. We, I... I grew up believing, like most of you did, is that I had to behave a certain way, and I had to do this, and I had to do that to be a good Christian. I had to get up in the morning, I had to pray, and I had to like, I had like, I had to bounce my eyes, I had to do things, I had all that stuff. That's what I was taught. Well, you know what that is teaching is that I'm doing it in my own strength. I'm doing Christianity in my own strength, and it didn't work. I still failed at that. I was a good kid, but I was still doing things in my own strength. And then when you under, understand that there's a spirit living inside of you and that, man, he'll deal with all this junk. He'll help you through. He'll, he'll help you teach. He'll help you study. He'll give you the desire to walk with him. He'll do all this for you if you just trust him. Trust his word. But as as preachers and teachers, we, we can't even trust it. So we tell people how they need to behave because we want them to control their lives and we want to control their lives. And so I get the Hellenistic dualism. They basically are taking grace and abusing grace. That's the difference. But for me, I'm going to choose to teach freedom in here. You're free. God's given you freedom. And the only thing that matters is what you do in faith. That's it. You can go do the flesh. You can go do what you want to do and all the other stuff. And you do it in your own strength. But that's all going to be burnt away. It's a big difference. So now, sorry. The spring of 85 is coming around. And some Corinthian Christians who work for a business... Uh, in Corinth, obviously, work for a lady named Chloe. And Chloe's people come to visit Paul in Ephesus, and Chloe's people fill Paul's ears with the horrors of the Corinthian church. They tell Paul the following. Remember, he's already written one letter. Now he's thinking about writing a second letter based upon what he these people tell them there's division jealousy and strife among the believers they say the church is fracturing into four parties four parties the first party some of the greeks are showing exclusive loyalty to apollos they like the way that he speaks eloquently that he teaches he uses big words and everything else and they're following apollos there's another group that's following Peter, and Peter's coming around doing all these miracles and, and special things from God, and they're just fascinated. They're fascinated with the things that Peter's doing because of the Spirit of the God working through Peter. Then there's a third group where they're like, forget the apostles, I'm just following Jesus. I don't need any apostles. 
I don't need any theologians. I don't need any, just give me Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus. Then there's a fourth group that's saying, hey, we like Paul. Paul's been here. He poured his life into us. He's given us some. So this group of people's telling Paul this and he's just like going, oh, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They're choosing sides and they're becoming divided. It's kind of a lot like our denominationalism today. And even inside the denominations, they split and become more and more. This is what Paul... So then Paul's disturbed by hearing this news, so he begins addressing this problem in a letter. Then Paul finishes the letter. And then three other guys show up, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. These three men begin to singe Paul's ears with more disturbing news about the Corinthian church. Not only did Chloe's people come and like dump on Paul, but now these three men have come over, and he's just finished, watch, he's just finished writing 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 when these three men show up. He had just put his pen down to answer all of Chloe's people's questions. Now these three men come and they begin to dump on him and he picks his pen up and he starts with chapter 5. You with me? So the wording in chapter 5-1 suggests that Paul had just received this news from these men. Illicit sexual relations in the church, and he responds to it immediately. Here's what they report to him. These three men. A brother in the church is committing incest, and the believers are ignoring it. Some are even boasting in their Christian liberty while this is going on. Some of the brothers are taking one another to court. Some of the brothers have been influenced by Hellenistic dualism, again, and visiting prostitutes and engaging in gluttony, thinking that what they do with their bodies has no bearing on their spirits. Their slogan is, everything is permissible, lawful for me, and food for the stomach, and stomach for the food. A number of the believers are very sick. A few of them have died recently. The slaves work late. And remember, slaves are basically just the employees, the workers, and cannot make church meetings on time. <laughs> the well-to-dos are not waiting for them, but are eating the Lord's Supper ahead of their poor brethren. That was a full meal in those days. It wasn't just a little cracker in the cup of juice, but they had a full meal. And still worse, the whole well-to-do people, they were treating the Lord's Supper as, as if it was a private dinner party. Now, this was, this was supposed to be a spiritual experience for them to remember what Jesus had done for them on the cross. But what would happen is the Corinthians, like the Romans, and much like us today, Michelle and I have noticed that now that we don't have kids, we eat on the couch a lot. We don't eat at the dinner table, but we eat on the couch. And when they ate on the couch in, in Rome and Corinth, they would literally lay on their side and lean on their left elbow and they would eat with their right hand. And they could get nine to 12 people 
inside this U-shaped couch, and they would just hang out together. Then the poor people, the lesser people, they would be outside and they would get the leftovers or even the lesser quality of food. This is what was going on in Corinth. They also said this, there's quarreling over the issue of the marriage veil. Some of the wives are removing their marriage veils when they pray and prophesy in the church meetings. Where's my veil? You all have your veils off? Shame on you. You put your veil on. Your marriage... See, what happened is in those times in Rome, in Corinth, and even Jewish families... The men didn't get married till their 20s, early 20s. But they married young 12, 13, 14-year-olds. And these were arranged marriages by the parents. This was the the context of the time, you guys. This is what was going on. Just like you're wearing masks today, you're going to talk about wearing masks someday to church in the future. And people are going to go, what are you talking about? That's weird. Maybe. But you have to keep it in the context. And so what would happen is these women would begin to take their, they would, they would wear these, these masks, these veils, these marriage veils to say, I'm married. It's like, what do you do today to say that you're married? You wear a ring. They wore marriage veils. If they went to Kroger, the marketplace, they put their marriage veil on and everybody knew they were married. If they took their marriage veil off, what would people say about them? Yeah, you know what they'd say because you do the same thing today when you see them without their marriage rings. You already pass judgment, both men and women. You pass judgment. And this is exactly what they were doing in that time right there. They had taken their marriage veils off and they were passing judgment. And wait, 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 this is getting good because not only are we dealing with masks and veils, but there was this new woman identity coming around. And this new women were like saying, forget the marriage veils. We're women. We can do what we want. We can be promiscuous if we want. This was going on back then. And this is what Paul is dealing with, and this is what the church is dealing with. The church is like saying, man, they need to put their rings on, they need to put their veils on, they need to show that they're married. They're going inside the church, and they're doing all this. So so here's the conflict. Paul, who is like, we've seen throughout all of his letters, he's encouraged women to participate in ministry. Like, they've financially supported him, and he's he's thankful for them. They're a huge part of his ministry, and teaching, and uh, financial support and everything else, but now there's this new woman idea coming along and it's conflicting with Paul's encouragement of having women in ministry. And he's having to like sort through all this stuff. We'll get to that in the letter. 
And then these three guys, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, they, they also hand Paul a letter from the church that is packed with questions. So now only, not only is like telling them the junk that's going on, but the church themselves has questions. And here's some of the questions that are contained in this letter that they delivered to Paul. Didn't you tell us not to associate with sexually immoral people in the world? How can we do that since most of the people we work with engage in sexual immorality? How are we supposed to avoid all these people around us that are doing all this junk? Is it possible? And some in the church who read your last letter about abstaining from sexual immorality are practicing sexual abstinence in their marriage. <laughs> That's convenient. You, you say that you're not supposed to touch, but so they literally ask him the question, do you agree with this, Paul? I'm not telling you till we get to the letter. Some of the believers have unsaved spouses. Should they divorce them or stay married? Some of the brothers who are betrothed, engaged to women in the church, are not sure if they should pursue marriage. What's your opinion, Paul? Is it wrong to buy meat that has been offered to idols at the pagan meat markets? Some are arguing that people went to the bars to eat, but others went to the temples and ate. And in the temples, they had to sacrifice and pray for the, the meat over, over the idols. What's the big deal? We don't believe in them, but can we eat the meat anyway? Is it wrong to dine into pagan temples? Some of you, some are critical of you, Paul, and are raising questions about the genuineness of your apostolic calling. They're asking, why don't you take money like Apollos does and Peter does? Why are you working this? low man's job of working with letter and making tents for your living. Are you really an apostle of Jesus? And then they ask, the meetings, and they're saying this, the meetings of the church are chaotic. They got the gift of tongues is exalted by some because it's the language of the angels. Many are speaking in tongues at the same time during the meetings and it's creating confusion in the meeting. Further, some of the married women are challenging those who are prophesying with many questions. This is creating both confusion and disruption in our gatherings. What should we do about this, Paul? Some in the church who have been influenced by Hellenistic dualism are denying a future resurrection. Can you address this? Please go over your instructions concerning the Jerusalem Relief Fund. There's some confusion over it. <laughs> now you know why 1 Corinthians got much longer. Because Paul literally is going to answer these questions when he writes his letter. He responds to these three men in the letter that they brought. And this is still part of 1 Corinthians, but it's the chapters 5 and following. And then Paul does this. He asks the church, he asks Apollos to visit the church in Corinth with some others. But Apollos can't do it at the time. Remember how Paul wanted to go to Rome? He's like, I just can't do it right now. Paul's couldn't either. Timothy is not with Paul as he pens the letter, but Paul plans to send him to Corinth when he returns. He wants Timothy to encourage the church at Corinth. So now Paul is sitting down and he's writing 1 Corinthians. It's the spring of 55 AD. He's still in Ephesus. Chapters 1 through 4, he's already done. Chapters 5 through 6, Paul's going to address the issues of sexual immorality and civil litigation. Chapter 7 through 15, he answered the church's list of questions that those three men brought. Chapter 16, Paul goes over his instructions for collecting the Jerusalem fund. He gives the church 
his new travel plans. I'm going to go visit these other churches up here in Galatia. Then I'm going to come to you and I'm going to hang out with you for a while. Because it sounds like you need it. And so he's telling them. Paul closes his letter by commending Timothy. And he also talks about uh, sending greetings from Priscilla and Aquila and the church in Ephesus. And it's a great letter, but it has a lot of issues. Do you think that we're void of issues in this very room? <laughs> I mean, I, I look, I can look in here, and without being judgmental, but being pastoral, I know what's going on in people's lives. It's not hard to see those who are walking by the Spirit and those who are walking by a, maybe in a season of their flesh. It's not hard. I mean, you guys can do the same thing. You know the difference between the two. But there's issues. And I'm going to come here every week, just like Matt said, and I'm not coming here to recharge you. I'm not coming here to condemn you. I'm not coming here to call you out. I'm coming here to encourage you. I'm coming here to remind you what we're here for, what you have in you. You have a spirit of the living God inside of you that wants to live your life for you. Even when you feel like you can't do it, he says, let me do it. Luke, he says, let me do it. Father, I pray that uh, all the stuff that's going on in here in this room, families and just issues, it's always been a part of the church that somehow, some way that you teach us and encourage us and remind us enough that we can just give us the trust to allow us to walk by your spirit. That we can see the difference. That we can acknowledge it. And we can trust you. And uh, let's pray as we study this next letter that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment. You would allow us to see how you're still to this very day working through us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.